reading from the third chapter of Paul's letter to the Philippians. For we are the real circumcision, who worshiped by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. For though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, and as to righteousness, under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The word of the Lord. Great. We're continuing on with our series, looking at the vision and values of Christ Church Vienna. Last week, we looked at the prodigal son parable and how we want to be a gospel-driven church. We're going to look again at what it means to be a gospel-driven church looking at Paul's letter to the Philippians, which Rod just read for us. The basic premise of being gospel-driven is this. The gospel must upend you and change everything. Now, my kids have had the pleasure of growing up near their cousins. For some reason, when all the cousins get together, there's eight of them, they go down into our basement, and our basement is a play area. It's a carpeted play area, and there are bins and buckets all over the place. There's little bins filled with Legos and Lincoln Logs and train sets. There's these tubs filled with stuffed animals. There's a big crate filled with Nerf guns and those little Nerf bullets, a basket with Nerf swords. There's another basket filled with balls. And inevitably, when the eight of these kids get together, it's, it's like a, a physics... Um, a, you know, a test or something like that, you can see what happens when a force that is just powerful hits a place. Like a tornado they go through there and every single bin gets upended. Everything is everywhere. Every Lego is on the floor because, of course, if you know, if you've ever built a Lincoln Log or a Lego set, in order to really build something properly, you need to dump the whole bucket out so you can find everything and then start rebuilding. The collection of my kids' cousins, with them, is a force that upends everything in the house. I've personally been upended in a not quite as funny or fun way. When I was a sophomore in high school, I played football at Madison, and by play football, I mean I was third string on the JV as a quarterback, 
But as third-string JV quarterback, I got to run the scout team occasionally against the varsity, which was not actually that fun. Um, so I remember one play in particular when I was under center and the, the team we were playing that week ran an option. So I had to take the ball, fake the handoff here, run down the line, and choose whether to pitch it to the running back or turn up field and run. So I went through my fake properly, got to the edge of the offensive line, and noticed that the running back I was going to pitch it to was about to get hit. So instead of pitching it to him, I tucked the ball under and turned, which is when I met Jeff Sherwood. <laughs> Jeff Sherwood was at least 50% heavier than me, at least 200% stronger than me, and a good 1,000% more aggressive than me. I was upended so quickly, I really don't remember what happened after that. I, I kept my faculties, but I was on the ground faster than you could, you could fall to the ground. I didn't know it was possible to hit the ground that fast. I did not want to run that play ever again. <laughs> Sometimes being upended is, is a part of a necessary rebuilding process. Sometimes it's just painful. And the same is true with the gospel, you see. The gospel must be an upending force in your life. When it is not, then we are simply dabbling in Christianity. You know, there's different ways to interact with Christianity that does not involve the gospel upending you. I can remember one friend of mine who got really excited about Christianity in high school. He was a part of this youth organization that had these great camps, and it was a lot of fun, and all his friends were doing it. It was the cool thing to do, and the pretty girls were there. And then he got into college, and the same thing sort of existed in these campus ministries. And it was a part of this whole environment of cool and social and emotional and fun. And then lo and behold, as he got out of college and couldn't find another fun thing like that, he ended up trying churches. And you guys, we're just not as fun as a cool youth group. We're just not. Sometimes kids grow up in the church, and when they head off for college or elsewhere, they leave the church themselves. Because for them, it was just a family thing. It was a cultural thing. In this part of the country, everyone goes to church. So we went to church. But now that I live in New York or D.C. or San Francisco, nobody goes to church. It was simply cultural, their Christianity. And then sometimes I've run into people who have dabbled in Christianity looking for moral or spiritual betterment. And so they try a little bit of Christianity and, and they like some of what Jesus has to say, but they also like the idea of meditation and grounding in Buddhism. But they also want self-discipline, so they do the CrossFit thing. And the combination of CrossFit, Buddhism, and Jesus means that they're really just looking for advice. They're not looking to be upended, to be transformed. They just want betterment. And Christianity is one of those ways, right? The gospel, the gospel must become personal. Not social, not cultural, not just advice. It's got to get to the center and challenge everything. The gospel becomes real when it wrecks and rebuilds you. C.S. Lewis, in one of the few times he said something with clarity, wrote, 
Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he is doing. He is getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you were not surprised. But presently, God starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably. It does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that God is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage. But he is building a palace. And he intends to come and live in it himself. The gospel must wreck you in order to rebuild you. That's what Jesus went around and did during his years of ministry. You go and read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the stories that that encapsulate Jesus' ministry on earth, and here's what you find. Jesus is constantly wrecking people's lives. Levi, the tax collector, is never the same again. Nicodemus, this great religious leader, cannot quite shake Jesus after he's met him. The woman at the well, a Samaritan prostitute probably, is never the same Everything is wrecked in order that Jesus might rebuild in them. Paul, who wrote the letter to the Philippians that we had read today, Paul had a very successful life plan. Things were going very well until he met Jesus and met him personally. And the gospel completely wrecked him. The basic premise is that the gospel must change everything. Our view of God, our view of ourselves, the world around us, and my hope is this church. So, as we're looking at Philippians, we're simply asking this question, how does the gospel change everything for Paul, and how might it change us as well? The context of our passage in Philippians 3 is that Paul is dealing with Jewish Christians who have come into the church in Philippi and told the Philippian Christians who are Gentiles, they're not Jewish, you guys need to be circumcised and practice Jewish practices to be real Christians. In other words, faith in Christ is not enough. You need to add on religious activity in order to be a complete Christian. Paul says that that can't be the case. That's absolutely ridiculous. Because I have thrown away all that was religious, all that was about my past, in order to gain Christ. He writes, If anyone has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Paul is talking about all the reasons in social and religious circles why he was highly regarded. He says, Look, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Paul is saying, look, I had every bit of social standing you can possibly have in Jewish circles for being a Hebrew. I had had everything in my heritage behind me. I was as socially credible as you could possibly get. He goes on to say, not only that, but I was a Pharisee and a zealot, meaning I'm a religious fanatic. I was a religious fanatic, and I followed all the religious laws as perfectly as you could possibly follow them. Not only that, I was blameless in my life. Morally, you could not find anything wrong with me. 
religiously accomplished, morally very good, socially completely at the highest level. Paul, in the currencies of the day, was incredibly wealthy, incredibly successful, incredibly highly regarded. Now, most of us don't throw around our ethnicity or our religiousness the way people in Paul's circles did, but we still aim for things similar to what Paul was aiming for. We aim for social standing or accomplishments or being good. In our culture, we have certain things that we value. It might not be being religious, but our our culture values power. It's why we look up to the presidency and even tell a kid in America, hey, maybe you could grow up to be president. It's a position of power and influence that's at the peak of what we're aiming for in life. In our culture, we value success. And so names like Gates or LeBron or Spielberg are known to us, these people who have been highly successful in their fields. Fame is another one that we highly value. And so we know names like Gates and LeBron and Swift, Taylor, not Jonathan. We value these things as a culture. And we, as individuals, have our own nuance on it. For instance, if I ask you the question, what do you want to be known for? In Paul's earlier day, he wanted to be known as a Jew amongst Jews, as somebody who was religious and morally upright. But if I said, what do you want to be known for? You might say, I value intelligence. I want to be known as a good parent, to actually be able to wear the T-shirt that says, world's greatest dad, and have everyone know it's true. I want to be known as tops in my field. Or if I said, what is it you're after? What is it you you most highly desire in life? For some of us, it would be getting married. For others, it's, I just want to retire early. I just want to get into that college of my dreams. Or I just want to have fun. What Paul is getting at in our passage is what you value most, whatever you value most, is what you turn to for your sense of worth and purpose in life. Whatever you value most, whatever you're after most, is your source of righteousness. That word righteousness that Paul uses a couple times in our passage is a word that's other places translated justification. Or to simplify it, it's rightness. Rightness with God, rightness with yourself. Whatever we turn to that is not God as our chief value and our chief end is our source of feeling right and justified. In the movie Chariots of Fire that is about Eric Liddell, um, Harold Abramson Harold Abramson was a sprinter in this story and he's kind of the the counter to Eric. And Harold Abramson was a sprinter whose chief goal in life was to win the gold medal. He wanted the glory and the fame and the honor that came with winning gold for his country. But he also knew the fear and dread of possibly losing that was over him. And he said in one lucid point in the, in the movie, he said, here's what happens is I will, I will raise my eyes And I will look down that four-foot corridor, that lane that I have to run, 
with 10 lonely seconds to justify my existence. But will I? Will I justify my existence? It's either gold or his life is a waste, and he knows it. What justifies your existence? For Paul, it had been his religiousness, his moral record, his Jewish heritage. But all of that got overturned when he met Jesus and the gospel wrecked him. Paul writes, But whatever gain I had, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Paul's talking about his past, his Hebrew heritage, his moral record. All of that he had thought was his gain. That word gain is business profit. It's your investments, your financial security, your assets. So he's talking about his moral goodness, his religiousness as his assets. I have all of this in my bank account. I am one of the richest guys around because look how morally good I am. Paul was incredibly wealthy in what mattered, social and religious standing. But he goes on to say, I thought that was my gain. I thought those were my assets, but now I consider them my loss. What I thought was my black in my ledger, I realized had been red all along. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. You see, Paul considered his religious goodness, his moral uprightness, all of that a loss because it was all a way that he had confidence in himself instead of in Christ. I consider it all a loss compared to something that is worth far more, knowing Christ. He goes on to say, For his sake, for Christ's sake, I have suffered the loss of all things that I used to count on, and I count them now as rubbish. That word rubbish was a vulgar term. You actually can't find it anywhere else in the Bible, probably because it's such a vulgar term. It's often translated trash or waste or excrement. Paul is saying all of his moral record in the past that he used to think of as wonderful treasure in his life, he now considers rubbish. The idea is this. If you were going to show up without a reservation, how might you get into the most exclusive resort in the world? You might roll in with a briefcase filled with hundreds, and they will let you in. You might have your personal jet land on the tarmac at their airstrip, have your entourage come out, and the paparazzi roll up as you exit the airplane and head towards the resort, and they will let you in. Paul is saying all of his goodness, all of his religiousness, all of his impeccable social standing was like going to the front desk at that resort with a wheelbarrow full of doggy doo-doo. No, no, I just shoveled this out of my backyard. I'm giving you this. Can I have a room? Paul is saying, 
our record, our accomplishments, our goodness is doo-doo. It's rubbish when it comes to the eternal scales before God. It can't get you in any more than a wheelbarrow full of dog stuff can get you into a nice resort. True gain, true gain is not my moral goodness, Paul says. True gain is that for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul now is finding his identity and worth, not in his goodness or religiousness, but in Christ. Paul no longer turns to his own performance to justify his existence. A running back in the NFL must stay fast or he's done. A model must stay young or she's done. A CEO must produce or he's no longer there. A professor must keep publishing. If you are after being loved or approved or successful, you've got to keep performing. And what Paul would say is that whatever you value, whatever you're after, if it is not Christ, it will eventually judge you as lacking. You will eventually come up short and it will throw you out like Harold Abramson, not finishing first. But the gospel, the gospel changed everything for Paul. It overturned his values, his goals, his identity, his worldview, his approach to everything. But in order for the gospel to change you as it did Paul, you have to realize the gospel is at its root a threat. It's like a rival. You know, a rival is somebody that you worry about, that they're going to get recognized instead of you. They're going to win and not you. They'll get promoted and not you. They'll get the part, not you. But ultimately, for a rival to be a rival, they have to be after what you're after. They have to be after what's at the core of where you find your identity and your worth or you don't really care. The gospel is a threat because it's after the core of you. It's after your values, your goals, your autonomy, your way of life. Which is why I would say, if you're still not sure about this Jesus thing, be careful. Be careful how close you get. You approach at your own risk. Jesus is in the business of taking over other people's thrones. It may happen all at once in your life, like it did for Paul on the road to Damascus when he met Jesus personally. 
Or if you keep coming to a place like this or keep seeking Jesus, trying to dabble in Christianity, you you may have it happen like a, a bad night playing cards where by the end of the night, you realize that your winnings are all gone, your pockets are empty, you're holding a pair of twos sitting in your underwear, and the guy across the table is laughing. You have nothing left. You've lost it all. And Jesus will be saying, that's right, I took it all. Everything you had is now mine. Slowly or suddenly, Jesus wants everything. But the gospel also tells us this. In losing yourself and in losing everything to Jesus, you will actually gain all that matters, all that really lasts. The gospel changed Paul's life direction towards Christ. He had previously been after being known as a religious guy, as being morally upright, as being a Hebrew among Hebrews. But now his life direction is towards Christ. Listen to what he says. Now, here's what I want to know. I want to know him, Christ, and the power of his resurrection, that I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. What does Paul now want? Not to be known by everybody as a great guy. He wants to know Christ. That's that word that we talked about a few weeks back, gnosko. It's a a Greek word that Paul's using that means to know deeply, intimately, relationally. Like you know your wife or a best friend. Not know intellectually. Like you know that two plus two is four. Paul is saying, I don't want to know theology like I used to. I want to know Christ personally, deeply, intimately. He goes on to say, I want to share in his sufferings in death. This is a guy who wanted to share in glory, to be recognized, to have power and influence, and now he's talking about wanting suffering and death. He wants to know what it is to walk in Christ's shoes, Christ who, though he was in equality with God, humbled himself and became a servant, as we said in the creed, the confession of faith earlier. He says, I want to experience the resurrection and the resurrection life. And he knows that the way to experience the resurrection life is in suffering and humility and knowing Christ first and most. Paul's singular passion now is to know Christ. He is after Christ. And so at the end of our section, he says, and so not that I've already obtained Christ fully or experienced the resurrection life fully, but I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. A guy who had relied on his moral record, wanting to be known, now simply wants to know Christ and he considers his moral record rubbish. The gospel changes everything. And the gospel has implications. It has implications to transform every area of our life. The gospel should change our goals, how we approach work or school or our home life. It should transform our personal desires, our relational life. And so in every area of our life, we could say, how would the gospel affect my life? For example, how might the gospel help you to overcome anxiety or deal with guilt? If you're the kind of person who deals with guilt, 
If you, let's go back to last week. We were talking about the younger brother and the older brother. The younger brother represented the irreligious way to go. The younger brother would tell you about your guilt. He would say, who says that what you're doing is wrong? You have no reason to feel guilty. The older brother, on the other hand, who represented the religious people, would say, well, if you feel guilty, you've done something wrong. You need to make up for it. You need to make restitution. You need to pay for it. You need to feel really bad, and you need to do some penance. A postmodern American would tell you, you just need more self-esteem. Stop feeling so guilty. Stop being so hard on yourself. You're a pretty good guy. The gospel tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, which means we can be honest with ourselves and say, yes, I've sinned. We can admit and confess it when we feel guilty. And yet the gospel also tells us it is by grace you have been saved, and there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Since it's by grace, I no longer need to feel guilty because my sin has already been paid for. I can have peace. In the gospel, I deal with guilt by being honest and confessing and trusting in the finished work of Christ and having peace. Or take another area, why do good or be honest or generous or forgive other people? Without the gospel, something else must motivate us to be good. Pragmatism, fear, selfishness. So why might you be good? Why might you be honest or generous if you don't have the gospel? Well, you'd be good because it's beneficial. Being good pays off very often. Or people will think well of me. People like good people. Or I do good things because it makes me feel good. Or it's out of fear of God. God's got to accept me if I'm good. But when our motivations are challenged, when it's not beneficial, when no one else is around to notice, when I don't enjoy doing this particular good thing, I'm a whole lot less likely to do it. You see, the gospel, on the other hand, says I'm sinful, which means I'm humbled. And so I don't need to try to protect my pride by being good and having other people like and approve of me. The gospel also says that I'm loved so I can be confident, not needing to prove my worth with my goodness. I can love, forgive, serve, be generous, all in gratitude to the God who has loved me and given me so much. I can love and be gracious and full of mercy and kindness and great deeds for the sheer pleasure of doing it, not for what I'll get in return. I can do it for others and not for me. The gospel, at its root, wants to change everything in our life. Our goals, our direction, our deepest motivations and desires. So a primary value of Christ Church Vienna is to be a gospel-driven church. I want us to keep working out the implications of the gospel in our work, our relationships, our successes and failures. But in order to do that, we need to let the basic gospel truths sink deeper, take root in our heart, change our view of everything, how we view ourselves, the world around us, others, God. 
the extent that we do that, Christ Church Vienna is going to be marked by things like humility and compassion and selflessness. This will become a place of healing and of joy and of grace. But each of us, each of us needs to be upended and wrecked by the gospel first and let it change and rebuild us from the ground up. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would help us to see the other sources that we turn to to justify our existence. Enable us to not be afraid to let you intrude in our life to take over the throne of our heart and desires. And may we taste and know and experience you in full, the resurrection life, the grace of God, the love of the God who died for us. In his name we pray, amen. Yeah.